This is Playfully, the podcast that talks with the most playful people I know and asks them how they got to be so playful. I'm Emily Cordy-Straff. My guest today is an inventor, a player, and a social circus guru. He travels all over the world to social circuses and circus symposiums. He has devised a way to make juggling as accessible as possible to as many people as possible and teaches it to a wide acclaim everywhere. It is a great pleasure to welcome Craig Quatt to the podcast. Hello. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, thank you. All the way from New Jersey. Yes, I'm right now I'm in New Jersey, but I just got, uh, before this I was in Iceland, and then before that I was uh, doing a European tour, so I'm just passing through. Were you in Europe for the fall, the whole fall? Uh, the tour was 10 months. I just got there in February, and I just left at the end of December. Oh, lands, that's a long time in Europe. Yeah, it's a long time. <laughs> Um, would you say you're good at playing? Uh, it's my job. <laughs> my job is to play and well, to help other people, help other people find their way to play as well. Oh, good. I need that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one of my questions was, um, is juggling a job or is it work for you? It's a lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have a, I'm a, I don't really have a job. I just have a life and I choose to use my life to make uh, people move their bodies and explore themselves, express themselves. Um, I, I focus all my project development around the outcome goals I want to achieve. And then as a secondary factor, I figure out how to support myself in doing that. But I start with my goals and then, and so it's like a game to me. For me, it's life is a game. I'm playing. I look at a map of the world and I say, okay, where is juggling not accessible? And what can I do to change that? And then I come up with a strategy and I play that game. Oh my God, that's incredible. Yeah. So your whole so your whole outlook on life is that it's a game that the goal is to get people to move and express themselves mm -hmm. in ways that they hadn't thought to do. I think that's what life is for everyone. Maybe not everyone acknowledges that. I just sort of embrace that reality. And then I understand that I can choose that the meaning of the game can be whatever I want it to be. And for me, I like, I think there's a huge value in flow and mindfulness and states of play. I, I, I believe, I understand the science that when you're in a state of play, you're actually, you're, your brain is in a different state of mind. It's not processing information linear. You get global activation, more flow state things that are similar to mindfulness and meditation and yoga and music and dance. And these are all traditions that human beings have sort of been obsessed with throughout our total existence. And I believe there are very important health benefits to having regular access to that state of being. Mm -hmm. And that when we don't provide that regular access, that's when we start to see all like the mental health issues, all the just lack of happiness and joy in the world. Um, so I, I believe that uh, we're supposed to play. And that we have, we build a society that teaches us not to play. So I'm understanding of that. And I don't expect people to, you know, change their entire lives because you got to survive. You got to work a job. You got to do your nine to five. You got to have responsibilities. But we, we need to be a lot more conscious about creating space and time for us to move and be human as well. 
or we lose something and we create more challenges. So that's what I make the point of my game is realizing that there's so many people in the world who are disconnected from themselves. And like, I could try to explain to you, like, you know, why we should be more tolerant of other human beings or whatever. And those are just words going in and out your head. But if I share an experience with you that allows you to feel more connected with yourself and more connected with me non-verbally, right, in a more abstract way, then that's going to cause different perceptions and awarenesses to grow. And juggling is the tool I use to do it. Juggling is just it's just an efficient way to to activate that state of being for other people. It has all the all the ingredients I need to do it very quickly. And also it gives me a lot of opportunity to communicate non-verbally because like music and dance, juggling is its own language. I don't know if that was a really long answer. Sorry about that. <laughs> wow, that was perfect. You really tied it all together and how society doesn't play and how we can build a society that 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 does focus on play in a way that centers mindfulness and connection. I love yeah. that. That is why I'm doing this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> That's why, that's why I'm living my life. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, let's broadcast all that. <laughs> Is there someone in the in your past um, that you learned to play from or who you think of when you think of playing as a child? Um, yeah, I've got many. Um, I've been really lucky. I've had a few mentors throughout my life from a young age, like educators have come in and intervened with me. Um, I mentioned you before we started recording that I, I come from sort of a, a broken home, I guess is the nice way to say it. Um, so I needed those educators and those interventionists to help me along the way. When I was nine years old, I was given the tool of juggling by one of these educators. Juggling and chess, it was a combination program. After school, we did one hour of chess and one hour of juggling. And uh, this individual's name is Lou DeLauro. He runs a project called Juggling Life in Dinellan, New Jersey. And it's a pretty interesting model. He's the only one I've seen that combines chess and juggling. But those two activities were really beneficial for me. They gave me a lot of tools. They helped me self-regulate my own like non-neurotypical like behaviors. It really gave me a lot of power, those two activities. Um, and then um, I had another, my, my chess coach. Uh, he's a guy, Joe Manuli, And he's... Um, He's a really good chess player, but he also has uh, no legs, so he walks around on his hands. So as a child, he was like, uh, when I was nine years old, this guy was my hero, not just because he was good at chess, but just the way he chose to live his life, because he had this very much like, my, you know, it's not my problem if you have a problem with me. Yeah. And so as a child, I like, watched him navigate all these situations socially and seeing how people treated him differently and not really recognizing him, you know, for the the powerful human being that he was because he didn't have legs. So I was exposed to a lot of uh, different types of people. Um, and then uh, th their interventions with me, this is a, that's a short list. There's a much longer list of people who've intervened. Hey. And I think over time it just sort of accumulated and, um, you know, I felt an appreciation and a gratitude. So it felt natural to me as an adult that I should go down a similar path, that I should be a person who supports and intervenes with other people because a lot of times like uh, the solution is actually pretty easy. Just giving a child attention and nurture. It's like mm -hmm. all you need, but not every child gets attention and nurture. Not every human being gets attention and nurture. Mm -hmm. So I, I saw the impacts. Like I didn't get a lot of attention and nurture in my home setting, but mm -hmm. through my 
school setting through my participation in different activities. I got a lot of attention and nurture, and that's the reason I'm still alive. So those all those people that gave me uh, that chose to step out of the lines to try some sort of different approach to learning with me because I was a challenging child. I'm I'm grateful for now, and I think that's a big part of why I choose to do what I do. Do you see children now who you work with that you see yourself in? I see myself in every person. We all are connected. We're all related. Like everybody struggles. Like and you know, we all have some form of trauma um, that we're trying to deal with. You know, we're we're born into this world. We don't know what reality is, and we got to figure it out. Like that in itself is traumatizing. Mm -hmm. And then many of us, you know, have to deal with other things like poverty or discrimination and things like that. So. I think anyone who's experienced injustice can relate to anyone else. You know, it's, it's relative, it's a spectrum. Um, I think I kind of, I fall sort of in the middle of the scale. So I have an ability to really relate and identify as much as I can with other people. It's also one of my strategies and philosophies for teaching as I always try to ident identify and embody the experiences of the people I'm working with. So when I work with different uh people of different functional diversity. So at one point I was researching, okay, how do I make juggling accessible for blind people? So I would blindfold myself, you know, every night for three hours and try to do a couple of my routines without sight. So I could feel what it was like to be them. Mm. And I do with many things with autism. And if someone doesn't have an arm, I try to really visualize and relate to their experiences. And I think um, it helps to have a lot of compassion. <laughs> mm. uh, but developing compassion is a capacity as well. And how you develop that is like another conversation. Well, yeah. I mean, I think of, I think of so many people who, you know, have had really difficult childhoods and, and things and, and their struggles are um, big, but somehow the compassion part of it is a little bit harder for them to um, come into touch with. Um, yeah. and I mean, I think, you know, empathy, I've heard it said that empathy is sort of a superpower. And I think that's, we're all starting to learn that, or I would hope so, you know, um, but it is, there is a learning curve on that one too. You know, it's not a given. No, no, but I, there are certain like cognitive schemas and structures you can develop in the brain that will enhance a person's ability to exercise compassion. Mm -hmm. So compassion is, is my ability to imagine your experience right so in order to have compassion for you the first thing i need to do is be able to creatively imagine the realities of another person's experience if i have low level imagination i'm going to have low level compassion right yes. which activities encourage and develop imaginative capacities dance music juggling yoga meditation chess all of these sort of like flow play all of this alternative state of mind that develops the divergent connectivity in the brain, which allows person to have a higher capacity to visualize and imagine other realities. Mm. So I think that's step one. The people I've met in my life who have the least level of compassion are also the people who have the least level of imagination, the lowest levels of imagination. Mm. Like never did anything creative in their life, always puts things in boxes and checks checks things off lists. And that's their, that's how they process reality. And they never develop this capacity to imagine things to be different. Mm. So I also encourage people to question and challenge everything as much as you can, because you need to always be um, training this tool 
it's not like okay i've now i'm this level so now i'm compassionate no you need to always be and it's not just like what you do with yourself it's just taking the time to to be mindful to practice to think about oh i had an interaction with someone today and they responded in this strange way and rather than just get angry at them use your imagination start mm -hmm. to imagine what could have been the reasons they responded that way see the human being if we can't see each other then we you know we can't take care of each other mm. Mm. So, so for me, it's like, yeah, juggling is a tool for me to develop people's capacities for compassion. Mm, yeah, I think I was reading <clears throat> one of your flyers about how juggling can be a formula for relationship. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful, really, the way. And, you know, when I interviewed Jessica Hintoff, she talked about how that's one way that she plays with people. It's so easy to play with people in the juggling uh, realm you know like she can just really be connected to them and really be almost like honed in to their you know it's like one two brains connect <laughs> uh -huh. it works it works really similar as music you know how like music can transcend space and time we can have distance between us but you could be creating music and i could be feeling and experiencing something with you as mm -hmm. you create that music Dublin works the same way but it's visual and it's tactile so, you know, my patterns create different visual stimulations for you that you could connect with, but those are a little bit more detached and harder for people to understand if you don't have a basis in the juggling. So what I do is I, I focus on creating forms of juggling that are interactive. So that means every object I touch, you touch. So when I put an energy into a ball and you receive that ball, it has a certain energy. And then when I'm sending you lock, you know, five balls per second or something, now you're getting all this different energy and that creates a frequency. So I create a melody, a tactile melody with your body as you interact with me. And I use that melody to, to regulate or stimulate your, your own experiences, like your, your, your emotional reaction to the juggling. So when someone's experiencing stress, I can, I can filter out that conversation and I can give them a different frequency of tactile information that their body imitates subconsciously yes. and then they meet me where I am. Yes. Um, so it's it is a bit creepy, like you know, if you look at it, it's like it's spooky action at a distance. It's almost like quantum mechanics. But <laughs> it's, it's these there's so many like real forms of communications that human beings have that we don't emphasize or try to educate as part mm -hmm. of our like we teach writing and 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 language and speech, but we don't look at all these other forms of communication. And we have so we're surrounded by tools. We call these tools play, right? Most of the things that we use to do this connection. We call play. So in society, we tend to place a lower value on it. Yes. When in reality, it's like, no, this is the base. This is the acorn. This is what you started with as a child. This is what you should continue to practice throughout your life as an adult. Yeah. And yeah. I love that. That is incredible <laughs> lessons for life. I love it. So you have a trademark. I think it's trademark, right? Juggling strategy. It's a functional juggling. Juggling. I have a brand. I have uh, some branding material, but uh, I don't trademark. I don't copyright. I don't file for patents. I've got more inventions than I think any other juggler I know. And I don't try to own anything. I'm open source. Mm. Open source with everything because I believe that we can create solutions. We can create better and more solutions collectively mm. than we can by trying to centralize the knowledge and the, the transformation into one individual. Right. Yeah. Like if I sit here and I say, I'm the king and I know everything, everybody has to come to me. Okay, maybe I make more money. Maybe I feel more self-important, but what change do I actually make? 
So I take this approach where people use my branding material, they use my book, they teach their own seminars, they, they sell juggle boards, they profit 100% for themselves. If they want to collaborate with me and or just share with me their successes, they're welcome to. But I put no barriers. Uh, the tools that I have are the tools that everyone else has. Mm. So I'm really against copyright, trademark. Um, uh, it's not my thing. I'm, I'm about change. And so I have to give tools to people. I have to empower other people to make this change with me. And if I try to consolidate the influence, I don't get that result. Yeah, because, you know, people have given that to you or to us, presumably, you know, how many times have people just given us tools that we have just thrived on? And if they'd have made us, you know, pay for it or, you know, yeah, and those, those, yeah, those, the people I've, I look a lot, I look a lot out into the world and I try to find examples of other people who have managed to like introduce a new discipline, introduce a new form of practice or transform an old version of practice and how they're able to achieve that. And um, the, the strategy that I, I have that seems to work for me is, is this open source model, this, this social collective development model, because every time I, you know, more people take the training, they feel so welcomed to contribute so they design they start to design props they start to create their own methodologies they start to take initiative to share these ideas with other people in their communities and then what happens things grow things change mm -hmm. and then i i tend to mentor those so as i keep going it's impossible for me to keep relationships with all the people i meet so i try to find like regional leaders people who are like just more motivated to take the initiative and then i just mentor them we don't have any sort of financial contract or anything. They just, they, they raise their hand or they're the ones that step forward and they say, I'm willing to put in my time and energy to help spread this idea. And I say that I'm willing to give you my time and energy to help you do that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it just works this way. I think uh, Western culture, a, a lot of my friends, even family, they don't understand why I didn't capitalize on the opportunities I had. Cause it's like a, a bit of a golden egg I got here. And uh, I just, uh, I try to explain to people at the end of the day, I just think you don't need to understand why I do it my way, but just accept it, you know, and enjoy the results, <laughs> enjoy the results. But that's, that's, a, that's a, another sort of way I've really, I think it's probably more, it feels for me that has been more of the challenge in the way that I have uh, tried to revolutionize the industry. Like the first, the, the easy part of the challenge was coming up with solutions to make it accessible. That was actually quite intuitive. Um, it was the, I think it was the open source idea that challenged, I've got more kickback on. There's a, there's a, there's a trip circus is old. They've got tradition. They've got traditional heritage. And in this tradition, it says that like what's mine is mine and you can't copy me and I keep it a secret and you have to come to my show to see this thing. The other show doesn't have this thing. So there's a lot of like protectionism in the industry. And when I came out as one of the first jugglers that said, I disagree with all of that. I'm not going to protect my ideas. I'm going to put files online for free with instructions so you can make it yourself. And I'm not going to ask you for anything that put a big disruption into their paradigms um, of control. And that's where I've gotten the most resistance. So some some circus people would really wish that I would stop what I'm doing. Um, but that's just that's how the game is it's just another level of the game you have to learn to play. <laughs> well, it 
takes a little bit of a singular mindset because the pressure must be on. I mean, in the world we live in, the flood of people thinking in one way can really overcome you. How do you stop from being overcome by, you know, that kind of wave of say capitalism or the wave of, you know, people trying to put play down on the low. Like on a personal level, this has been the hardest part of the journey. I was wondering. I think there's a lot of people in life who end up with good ideas, who discover things naturally. That happens all the time, every day. But you you can't you can't cross the finish line with just a good idea. You also need the conviction. You also need the determination because telling people to change their minds mm-hmm. is not an easy thing to do. Um, you will you will make people angry. <laughs> Some people will love it. So I have a couple of different strategies. Like one, it's important to be grounded with yourself to know what you're doing. You know, so I'm constantly having conversations with myself about what I'm doing and why. So that can be quite exhausting, but that's if you want to resist, be resistant. So when someone approaches you and tells you what you're doing is wrong, that you can be confident enough to tell them, I don't care. You know, sometimes it's hard when those people have positions of authority or influence or maybe even some of my idols that I've looked up to over the years. And then they just Mm -hmm. don't want to change their minds. And I just move on. I think the world is such a big place um, that any time I go somewhere and I'm not getting an openness to the ideas, I just go someplace else. Mm-hmm. So I had a problem in the United States where I started there and I was trying to get in with the clinical field and they were loving it. Um, every time I'd go in and make a presentation, it, you know, doctors, room full of doctors, stand in ovation. This is incredible. This is great. And then it asked me what my background was. And I tell them I was a juggler and they're like, oh, well, come back to us when you're a doctor. So like in the United States, there's like a lot of conservative mm-hmm. like mindsets with things like they really um, so I said, okay, well, this is a culture where they're they're not open to exploring ideas that haven't been, you know, um, capitalized in some way. <laughs> so, medical. Uh, yeah, which is part of the same, you know, it's a spectrum. It's a step in the right direction, in the wrong direction. Um, but then I went to places like Europe where they have universal health care or Eastern Europe where they have universal health care, but very little funding. And there I found people in the clinical world who were like, we will take, if it works, we see that it works with our eyes and you're telling us we can have it. It's cheap. It's economic. It's going to benefit the people that we work with. We will, we will practice it. Mm-hmm. So this is why I'm in Europe so much because there I get to work with the circus people and the clinical people. There's no barriers. Yeah. They don't yeah. see me as something less. They see me as, as a gift. Like, mm-hmm. oh, we're so grateful someone from your community could, could learn about our language and take a, a tool that you had and put it in our hands. Thank you so much, sir. That's the reaction I get there. Not in all of Europe. Like when I go to Germany, when I go to France, when I go to the UK, you get similar Western culture where it starts to be like, well, who are you? And I'm like, I'm nobody. That's the whole point. The whole point is I'm nobody and you shouldn't have to be anyone either. Now let's play. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I find that I just keep moving. That's part of the strategy. When I go to South America, it's a party. It is a pure party. There's no, I don't have barriers there. People are used to the way that I organize and be an open source. They're used to community growth and development. Like there is no strong sense of individualism in South America because individuals don't really do well in poverty. Like you need community to survive poverty. So in South America, I thrive there because the people, I don't have to explain my strategies. I don't have to explain why I'm choosing to, to just live my life this way. Whereas when I go to the U.S., it's either, okay, how come you're not a doctor and how come you're not trying to charge me more money? 
And I'm like, what, why are those your first two questions? Like, I just showed you that juggling can be accessible for anyone. And those are your first two questions. So I think um, it's bothered me when I was younger in my career, definitely more frustration. And those doors would close on me and I try to kick them down and they don't work. So I just realized that there's so many doors in the world. And if, if you're not vibing with a group of people in one part of the world, there's another part of the world that you could vibe mm -hmm. and go there, help those people grow and it'll, it'll spread. Mm -hmm. Um, I, that's a big, that's another big topic though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I love your idea that, you know, you just keep moving and you keep, and it's almost like you keep kind of inundating yourself with different perspectives. And I think like, that's a, it's a real, um, it's a real essence. It's a real strategy. Um, and, and I, I don't, I don't know how to say this. Well, I mean, my dad was uh, an organic farmer in the 80s. You know, so I grew up on an organic farm. Not something like there was no Whole Foods. There was no, you know, the local grocer didn't really sell it, any of his goods or anything like that. So he had to, you know, a lot of challenges, right? A lot of challenges wasn't really accepted. Like, why aren't you just, you know, throwing this chemical on? It'll keep the weeds out and things like that, you know? And <clears throat> and what ended up happening with him was that, you know, the bank didn't believe in it. And so he ended up, you know, losing his livelihood and everything else. And then, you know, he had a lot of kids. So yeah, I'll come from nine. So he couldn't really mm -hmm. move on, you know, as well. So at, yeah. you know, just a little something about um I, when I try to frame it into my own my own world because that's kind of what I do <laughs> sort of in this self-centered way there is this sort of privilege I think about continuing to move and continuing to um um go in different places but as we think about where we are right now which is the United States there's plenty of opportunity for um different culture I suppose um that may be one option but what would you say for for anybody for the U.S. For a U.S.er who is looking, I mean, I've been out of the, I've been out of the country for a while, flooded, but I not get flooded I, by the the individualism and the yeah. I tried I tried many different ways. I lived in this country for thirty years before I left, and in the end, I just found that the way that I wanted to live was not going to bring me success in this country. Mm -hmm. and, I'm sorry. I wish I had something more positive to say about it. And it's like such a huge issue, like it no is. fault on the U.S. It's such a social experiment. Well, there's no place on US. earth that is like the United States. I've been to so many different countries yeah. and there's there's no place on earth like here. And for whatever reason, the, the sense of capitalism in this culture is just too strong. So you, you, you either have to come from privilege to begin with, like if you're lucky enough, you got some rich parents, you might be able to create some sort of like community collective thing, hippie vibe, but you got to have money to begin with that game. And if you don't come from money and, and you want to live your way and explore your way, then I, do, I just, I don't, the U.S. was not the place for me to do it. Yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the, that's, I wish I had something better to say. Well, I think it's true. And I think it's, real facts. And I think it's something that, you know, I, I do, you know, in a personal way, you know, so many people I love are here in the U S and they are 
U.S. or so. I love this country, of course, right? So lots of us do love this country. It's not it's not out of hate, but I think it's out of. Uh, <clears throat> it's the way the system is set up, you know. Like here, it's very the form of capitalism in the U.S. is very brutal. Like when I say it's not like anywhere else in the world, nowhere else in the world has this level of lack of social safety nets, like lack of concern for inclusion and diversity. Like the conversations that they have in the U.S. is ridiculous to the rest of the world. You guys are still talking about like transgender issues and everyone's just like, just make a gender neutral bathroom. Problem, <laughs> <Yeah>. problem solved. <laughs> like it, it, it's insane. It's insane. You know, the, the amount of like. There's a lot of, I feel there's a lot of tension in this country. It's hard to, you know, it's easier, like, but it's easier to criticize from the outside because if you come from like a country like Belgium, it's very homogeneous. Everyone is the same. Everyone, so they can kind of like coordinate themselves and even within the system of capitalism, they can still make community. But in the US, you have just fragmented society. You have an extreme version of capitalism. And it's really hard to get people to feel, you know, to even trust you enough to, to let down their guard to begin to build the community with them. Yeah. And because that, they're, they're constantly it's like having to compete. Right. 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 And like, I don't I don't see competition as play. That's not play for me. Right. I don't I don't like competitive sports. I don't I think that we, we emphasize way too much on it, like, especially in the U.S. You have to imagine. I tell this story sometimes in my workshops that I, I describe my experience as a teenage male in the United States. You know, I wake up, I'm 16 years old. I have zero contact with with any parent before I leave the house. I go to school. Maybe I fist bump a couple people. Um, maybe I give like a quick tap. And then after, so I have no physical expression, right? And when I do decide to express my body physically, I do it with violence and competition. Mm -hmm. So you have you have all these all these men in the United States growing up and their only access to physical expression is violence because it's it's not cool if you're a guy to do dance or theater, right? And, and you're just lacking all of this like critical development because you don't have contact. This is where the social circus helps a lot because there we have so many opportunities for constructive forms, cooperative constructive forms of physical expression. So when I do partner acrobatics, I'm mm. not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to dominate you. I'm trying to support you. Mm. Um, and so you have to imagine what are the impacts? And then you look at the statistics, you know, you see the way the, how much men are struggling with things like depression, domestic abuse, like all these things. And it's like, yeah. well, how did you prepare them? You know, what what opportunities did you give them to uh, express themselves physically that was not violent, that was not competitive? Mm -hmm. Normalize competitive sports. It's a huge industry. There's a lot of money. So it's not going away anytime soon. But it's one of those things where if you just take a small step back and look at the look at the thing, the whole thing, the whole picture, it becomes very clear. Like we are not giving young men the opportunity to express themselves physically in a cooperative way. We are only teaching them to express violence. And that's the only physical contact they have from like ages 12 to whenever they're supposed to be adults. What is going to be the outcome of that? Whereas in other countries, the concept of masculinity is much more flexible. Like in the U.S., you got a really strong concept of masculinity. And it's okay for men to do theater. It's okay for men to dance. Like it's okay for men to express, you know, parental like desires. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So I, I feel that that's a big issue is not having uh, oppor enough opportunities for people to not just to, to play physically, but to play in cooperative ways. That's really important. Yeah. Get away from the competition because uh, that that I feel like that sports, that competitive, it's more conditioning people to participate in the system of capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, let, let's play a game that like Monopoly. Let's play a game. This is how the world works. You dominate, you win. Great. Now go out into the real world and do it again. 
Right. That's right. that's what we're that's what we're training our children to be, and then we're surprised when when there's a high divorce rate, when people are really yeah. depressed, or when there's so much mental health issues going on in those cultures that don't encourage that physical expression, that positive physical expression. You get that's where you you don't have the same rates of depression and mental illness that you do in other parts of the world. Like, yeah, I think like the UK and the US are some of the highest, and for me, those are cultures that don't allow like men to express themselves positively without social ostracization. And those are cultures that emphasize capitalism over all other values. Mm -hmm. And then you see a lot of mental health crisis. Well, I don't disagree. I don't know how we got into politics, but I, <laughs> I, it's, it's related because it's why we do what we do. It like, is. I don't just do what I do because I'm a nice guy. Like I look out into the world. I, I really analyze the challenges that are there. And I think, what do we need? Like, what do we need? Whatever it is, I'll do it. But you got to find out what do we need? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. I'm <clears throat> all about trying to figure out how to make the world a, a more uh, less abrasive place. And especially for our young people in the next generation, because it's not it's not going to get any easier. In fact, it's probably going to get harder. So I. Yeah. Yeah. They need more skills and more tools. and. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta ask you about the the functional juggling. Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> you talked about uh, how functional juggling, you know, and you know, I'm a therapist, right? So you took it into more clinical realm, that sort of thing. So, I mean, in occupational therapy, we work with, um, you know, you, you talked about the tactile uh, experience of juggling and the. Um, of course, the visual experience of juggling, the connected um, energies of juggling and the movement pieces of juggling, which is a lot of like um, in OT language, we talk about sensory aspects and how we learn in multi-sensory ways. And of course, that's mm -hmm. a perspective as well. And the other um, piece of it is, you know, that we think of these kinds of things as foundational for um, more more productive means of um, function, right? So putting on your pants or, you know, trying to uh, walk down the stairs or, um, you know. Yeah, functional, functional outcome goals, yeah. Yeah, so. Do I call it functional juggling? Because I integrate all of those types of movements into the juggling to enhance repetition, time on task and comprehension of assignment. So I'm able to communicate the type of movement I want without having to speak because I use a system of play and I use exchanging of objects. So I get tactile feedback as well. So it's a very sensory integrated form of communication that I use. I use a lot of early childhood development strategies, just mirroring, trying to trigger those mirror neurons, imitation of rhythm, imitation of touch, imitation of sound, imitation of vision. I just create imitation and repetition. And then I'm able to just switch out an object. So at first I introduce the game with balls that are rolling around. It's very intuitive. The person learns it without explanation. And then I change one of the objects for like a pen. Mm -hmm. And now they're, they're rolling two balls back and forth to me, but passing a pen back and forth to their hands. In a 10 minute session, I get them to do 600 repetitions with that pen. Because I'm using gesture and imitation, right. I can get them to do whatever movement I want with the object. I do it, they copy. So I'm able to, in a short period of time, communicate a wide range of motion without having to speak, without having to give instruction. And my main focus is repetition, time on task, and diversity of movement with whatever object the therapist tells me they want to work with that day. So how does that translate into functional skills? 
as it translates to functional skills. So you got you got two sides of that. Is like one is the direct outcome. If you tell me, okay, we want to practice pouring cups of water today, I can make a juggle juggling game where we pour cups of water, right? So you have right away you have the repetition and time on task. I feel like that's the baseline expectation of most occupational therapists I work with. They're like, great, you got a lot of repetition and time on task with the movement I wanted. You did well. I said, but I'm doing a lot more than that. Because usually you have the expectation for them to do the motor control movement in one uh, sequencing relationship with their body. So lateral, you know, and uh, one, one hand at a time. When I play, we use two hands. So we alternate. They'll, they'll be pouring cups of water with both hands, alternating rhythms. They'll be crossing their arms and pouring it bilaterally. So not only am I developing the motor control repetition, but I'm also doing it with, with it with a variety of sequencing capacities because in the real world, functional transitioning, right? How often are you going to be in this exact position with your body to do that action? You need mm -hmm. to know how to do that action laterally, bilaterally, synchronous and asynchronous if mm -hmm. you want to apply it in the real world. So I make sure that I don't just teach the motor control movement, but I teach it within the context of all the possible four uh, relationships that you can have. Yeah. Just synchronous lateral, asynchronous lateral, synchronous bilateral, and synchronous bilateral. Um, so that was, what was that aspect of it? That's, so I'm adding in that other level. And this, this type of sequence in play, it really enhances, it encourages global activation, encourages flow. People forget about time because we're going into these repetitive patterns and rhythms. So the mm -hmm. concept of linear time becomes distorted in that system of play. And then I get huge attention spans. And a lot of feedback I get from therapists all the time is that kid never sits still. That kid never works on anything for more than three minutes. And I'll sit there for 20 minutes with them. It's it's effortless uh, because it's, it's the juggling. It's not me. Juggling's like music. It's, it's something universal. So it's like when you stare into the fire, it's telling you something. So you keep mm -hmm. staring. When you look at the ocean and the waves, it's telling you something. So you keep looking. Juggling has built, music is built on those same formulas. So especially when you're working with like people like sensory integrated problems, like autistic people, they're just sucked in. It's their language. They're like, mm -hmm. this is a universal language that everyone can understand. Um, what's the other thing that I get a lot of positive feedback from OTs on is the ability to communicate such a wide variety of movements without having to explain. And I find this is the gap between circus and OTs. Mm. I OTs are very qualified in figuring out what the person's challenges are, what their needs are, and what prescription they should. Oh, this person should have this type of engagement in order to develop this thing. Me as a circus artist, I might not know that necessarily, right? But what I do know how to do is play. I spend all my time thinking about how to make people move their bodies. If you are studying all, all the time what is wrong with people's bodies, that's not actually preparing you to know how to play with those bodies. So I see this, this beautiful matrimony between circus artists who are professional play artists and occupational therapists, right? So we be both kind of looking at each other's materials. Circus people, we look to OT to try to learn from you. OT people can look to circus. So when I travel, when I make my collaborations, that's what I'm doing. I'm teaching circus artists how to use my methods, and then I'm introducing them to occupational therapists and different clinical communities, and I'm saying, work together. You both have two very important pieces of the puzzle. Because mm -hmm. I see OTs, they get there, it's like they know exactly what's wrong, and then they come up with the most boring, mundane exercise. <laughs> and they expect the person, the person has zero motivation, zero comprehension, constant interruption. They facilitate a 45-minute session, and they get, like, if they're lucky, 150 repetitions. And for me as a juggler, I'm like, that's just not good enough. You need more repetitions in less time. You, you, have, to, you have to create play. 
you're not going to get as many repetitions if you don't create play. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. I love it. Yes. I've, I've definitely uh, fallen into the show, that trap of trying to get repetitions and not uh, the child not really liking it or the, the person not really liking it. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, let me get back to play too. So have you ever had a period where you played too hard? Play too hard. I don't know what that means. What does it mean to play too hard? Like too aggressive or too maybe, much? Yeah. Maybe you haven't ever had that. We've played too much. Like there's too much play. You know, you always hear from people, you, you played too hard yesterday or we played too hard. <clears throat> um, I'm not, I think I can interpret that question uh, in a way when sometimes, you know, I have this method where I facilitate, it's a very, you know, disciplined method where you can actually facilitate a person, you can take them through all the ABCs in a very natural, organic way, and everyone has success no matter who they are. But we also do this thing where we just often put these props in a room full of kids and we, we let them do free play with it because they're just like mechanical sculptures that you can explore. And if you leave a, a group of kids together long enough, there's only so many options that they're going to figure out in the structure. So they discover the juggling on their own, which is like a much healthier learning process. Just let, create an environment, let people go into it and figure it out. And it's a lot of the systems are cooperative. So they're having to play together. When I do this, I observe that some children have a tendency, many children have a tendency to overstimulate at the beginning and they are rolling the balls so aggressively at each other. It looks like they're fighting. They're just trying to win. They're trying to win. Um, so I observed that for me as, oh, they're playing too hard. But really what they're doing is they haven't figured out the communication yet. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning, they're just, they're talking to each other. They're screaming, I push the ball harder. I push the ball harder. Yeah. And it's very, it's not an enjoyable experience for them. But yeah. then they get sensory feedback. Their bodies are getting sensory feedback. They're continuing to experience, so they're able to reflect in real time as they're doing it. And mm -hmm. oh, if you just let those two kids that are very uh, competitive with each other play for five minutes and you say nothing and you come back, at some point they will have a very balanced rhythm. They will learn to play nice to each other because every object that's being exchanged is giving them information. I like that. I don't like that. The body is looking for balance. The body's always looking for balance with the sensory information it receives. The body is programmed to imitate the sensory information it receives. So over time, two people who are being non-cooperative will, will organically and naturally find a shared rhythm. Yeah. I call yeah. it spontaneous synchronization. It's like, uh, it's you know when you see metronomes, there's this experiment where you mm -hmm. put a bunch of metronomes on a, a piece of plywood that's being suspended by rope so it can kind of swing? Mm -hmm. You start all the metronomes at a different frequency. They're all going at different frequencies. And if you leave it there, they will all end up on the same frequency. They'll synchronize. Because the vibration of the table sends hmm. information to the other one and influences them so that they have the same. It works. The juggle board, this putting an object back and forth between two people is an atomic clock. It's just boop, bop, boop, bop. So you can use that context to um, to, <laughs> to get them to, to self-regulate with you. Yeah. That is fascinating. And it's kind of magical. It's kind of magical when you see it happen. I can't wait. Yeah. Well, I did look on some YouTube videos. I did see some, there's some great videos. I mean, and if you want to tell us where to look for the audience, 
Yeah, so we have a website, which is quatprops.net, and that has a lot of uh, open source resource tools on it. There's a book that I published in 2020. You can download for free. If you want to buy me a coffee, you're welcome to, but it's not necessary. We also have uh, open source free files for how you can produce the juggle boards yourself. You just need access to a CNC machine. There's also instructions on how to make it from recycled materials because it doesn't have to be a specific design. It just has to fulfill a certain function. So there's many ways you can create these props and we encourage people to be creative there. Um, the YouTube channel I think is really useful because we have a lot of playlists of just like hundreds of hours of examples of different people from around the world creating other forms of juggling with me and applying them inclusively. Because I think that's the best way to learn is just just look at all the examples. Oh, there's an, there's an application. There's an application. Those two are different, but they're the same in some way. What's the same about them? So the YouTube channel, if you're not into reading, if you're not into studying, just go to it. It's called Ideas for Play Playlist. Ideas for Play is the name of the playlist. Mm. It's uh, all, the, all the students from all my workshops from around the world, and it's mixed groups. So you're watching circus people and therapeutic people working together at the end of their workshop to design new forms of juggling that can be therapeutic. That's the purpose of my workshop. I give a 12 hour training course on this. That's what I do when I travel. Everywhere I go, I give the same training course. Mm -hmm. um, so you can find a lot of resources on social media. And also if you have any projects for collaborations, I'm a very open person. You just shoot me an email, coopprops at gmail.com. Yeah. Um, I like to make collaborations. If you're if you're interested in growing these programs, that's I'm more focused in my energy for the people who are trying to build sustainable things. Yeah. So one-off events, I'm not that interested in. But if you're like, no, I I want to establish this practice in my region of the world, then you'll get my attention. <laughs> yeah, you gotta think. You gotta think of uh, the net uh, uh, outcome, right? Yeah, yeah. I gotta manage my resources, and I am a resource. <laughs> Yes, that's how you play the game. Um, what makes play fun? What makes play fun? Okay, again, you can go different directions on that. I think I'd like to share one aspect of what makes play fun from my perspective as a juggler and how I found this element that I can use to make play fun for so many people. And I believe it has to do with perceptions of time mm -hmm. and how we are processing time in each moment. Right now, we're both processing time linear because we're having a linear conversation. And that's a useful way for us to be processing. It's helping us to communicate. But it is not the only way we have to process time, right? When you're in a state of play, there is no time. Time is not linear. There's only the moment. You're reacting to the environment and, and the environment's reacting to you and that's it. And when you enter these states of mind, so juggling does the same thing, dance does the same thing because it, it breaks from the linear meter of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and it goes one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. In these states of movement, it distorts our sense of linear time. And I believe that's a key factor for what makes play fun because in this distortion of this sense of linear time, it, it's what allows the brain to start to communicate nonlinear. And when it does that, that's when it's giving you all this dopamine, all of these positive sensations, because it's saying, this is a health benefit to me. Do it more. Yeah. Detach from linear time more often so that I can reconstruct and reorganize this information in a way that I need to. So I see a key element of fun has to be releasing your sense, yourself from the sense of future or past. That's what makes fun, fun, play fun, mm -hmm. is being released from a future and a past and just being in the moment and then all the chemical reactions that come from that.
much of your day do you spend in play? I'm a busy guy, so and it's really there's a thin line between play and work for me. Um, <laughs> usually, most weekends I'm playing the whole weekend because I give my workshop, and that's play for me. Um, and then, or I'm traveling, and that's a form of play. You know, I, I'm having to figure out how to get myself from one part of the world to another part of the world, and that's play. If I'm if I'm doing emails and I'm I'm researching a new part of the world to try to make cooperative collaborations and contracts, I'm doing it with people who I like, so they're all my friends. Mm -hmm. So that's it's like I call like my friends in Italy. We just did a functional juggling convention. You know, it took us like six months to prepare, and then I had to get out there. But the whole I'm talking, I'm organizing it with my buddies. It's like if you decided to have a barbecue with your friends, would that be work or play? Mm -hmm. So I feel like uh, I'm not always playing in the traditional sense, like with my body and movement. But uh, I gamify everything in life. Everything is a game. If I got to clean up, that's a game. I got to make a game out of it, you know? Wow. Yeah. So I try to play as much as I can. I try to be in that state. But it, because I feel so often that I'm being pulled away from it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You, you really you really have to focus if, if you just let the world decide for you it's going to tell you not to play well, so really you, you have to make the play yourself yeah if you let the world tell you or decide for you it decide for you it will take you away from play yeah. that's so true it's so true so yeah i mean many too many serious people <laughs> there's a lot serious, serious. <clears throat> yeah so, I think in the U.S. it's hard, like when you and when you have like so example like school, like why is it so hard in public school systems to get play as part of the learning standardized testing? You're 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 you look, you're you're already focused on an outcome goal before you've even begun anything. You have to be for play to happen. You can't really have expectations, right? So it's a different way to interact. People don't like it because well, what's going to be the benefit of this play? It's like there's going to be benefit. You're just mm -hmm. not going to be able to quantify that benefit, and that's where I think we kind of lose focus on it. Like, you know, okay, if I sit down for 20 minutes and I respond to emails, there's a quantifiable outcome. But if I spend 20 minutes playing, what was the real benefit? You know, like, how do I know yeah. that I gained something? And you got to trust the process. You yeah. Trust the process. Okay. Faith in the process of life. All right. Do you think that play connects you to others? I think I know the answer. Sure. But... Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I do it. I why it's why I do it to feel connection. I love to play with people who are different than me, who are like nonverbal or speak another language. I play juggling. I teach juggling all the time to people who either don't talk or don't talk the same language as me. And being able to share such an intimate experience with them, to connect with them in so many ways. And I otherwise I would have I, I don't have any other tool to do it except play. Yeah. Except juggling. Juggling is my tool. And I get to travel the world. And I, I so it's it's so revealing as well. I work with people on the autism spectrum. And you look at this person, you think there's no communication going on with any other human being there. Like, you know, and then I, I start to juggle with them and I start to share the frequencies and I feel their changes in energy. They feel mine. We're influencing each other. We're making suggestions, passive suggestions to each other back and forth. And suddenly I'm so much more aware of this human being than I was before when I was trying to communicate to them based off my understanding of communication, verbal. And then when I just let go of my form of communication and I embrace other people's more universal forms of communication, movement, and play, then I'm able to experience people that I I feel so privileged. It's such it's such an amazing sensation to experience a nonverbal person, connect with them in a way that like they're doctors. They're even I have, a lot of times I have parents come and like cry and hug me 
of autistic children because they tell me like they they never even all they want is recognition from their child like all they want is to know that their child knows they are there and the juggling lets them do that so i'll, I'll have a mom and an autistic child play together juggling and then afterwards the, the parent is crying mm -hmm. like i i never felt that awareness from my child i never felt his attention for me that much mm -hmm. so like does play make connection yeah a little bit Mm -hmm. <laughs> a little bit. and it trans well, it's not just to make connections it transcends communication barriers and that's the critical that's the critical challenge you look at all the people well, yeah we're all different how are we going to overcome those differences we first we got to communicate we have to find some form of communication that we can share right yeah i mean i think it's so often that synchronicity that uh both people's attention on and in this case it's an object and oftentimes it is an object um that i found whenever i'm teaching um people with autism are, are trying to get into their world. It, it, it's about whatever object they are attending to and trying to notice and play and figure out if I can bounce something back to them or see if they can yeah. know that I'm there. Yeah. Always, always trying to take what they're already working with and figuring out how to integrate it into what you're trying to work with. And that's, that's compromise. That's um, human connection. <laughs> yeah. Starting that's the process. That's the process. And I, I, for me, it's very natural to look at every learning process that way. Yeah. And I, I don't really understand why it's not the norm, but people tell me. <laughs> yeah, you have a unique brain. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to say something kind of Zach Galifianakis, you know, that between two ferns or... or um, okay. okay. <laughs> All work and no play. All work and no play. Uh, what about that? Yeah. What? What about it? <laughs> All work and no plays. That's that's what people tell you. All work yeah. and no play. What does it do? It causes mental illness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all work and no play causes mental illness. And even if you're a high functioning person with all work and no play, let's say you work at I don't know a hedge fund, and you're super successful guy and working all the time and you can buy whatever you want but um that guy's not happy that guy's definitely not happy and i know we normalize that type of behavior but it's actually quite like i read a meme the other day it was like if there was if we discovered a monkey in the jungle that started going around collecting all the bananas so that other monkeys were starving to death we would want to study that monkey we would want to study what's wrong with that monkey but wow. when human beings do it when human beings do it, we celebrate it. Mm -hmm. So I think we're living we're living through a really strange time in, in human history or human evolution where we just normalize so much strange behavior and we call it work. Like that's work, right? Someone who goes out in the US, if you work hard all the time and you don't play, you don't take breaks to play, then you can be successful and you'll have that success. And you'll have a lot of people who are around you that aren't actually really connected to you. They're mm -hmm. just there for the resources you provide them. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think all work and no play makes a very lonely life. Um, maybe probably on the surface, you would appear to be successful. Mm -hmm. we, we, society would celebrate you for working so hard and not playing. But if you actually got to know that person, it, it probably would be the opposite. And that's often how it is. You know, what we present to the world is not what we're going through. So I think, uh, it's tempting to think all work and no play is a good strategy. And 
if that's what you choose to value in life, I wish you luck in that journey. <laughs> But I, uh, from my own experiences, um, diverse, a lot of diverse life experiences I've had, I think that um, all work and no play is not a good strategy for, for a quality life. If you want to have quality life, then you need to play. You need to find value in making the time for that play because sometimes people just don't see the value in it, I think. It's always, it's the last on the list. It's always last on the list. True. It's always the last thing. Which is why it's really helpful to gamify your lifestyle. You know, mm -hmm. like if, no game make if you can't find the time to play then make the things you're doing play turn turn it into a game like i turn occupational therapy into a game i because I, I was working with a therapist they're like okay our work is we have to do this work we need to get repetition and i'm like okay that's what needs to happen for work i will turn that work into play mm -hmm. so make work play maybe my 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 response to that would be like make work play yeah. How old were you when you were seeing an OT, a therapist? When I was seeing an OT? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. This is like I think the end of the conversation now, but my first year of uh, education, I was in special needs. I was, a special, I was in a special needs education program. Okay. It was like hyperactive kid. I didn't really understand social norms or what the expectations were. So like they couldn't control me. So they put me there. And then I lived my life uh, identifying as a person with just whatever impairments society told me I had. Mm -hmm. And then um, I had like different interventions. Like I, sometimes I had a teacher aide during school at sometimes different moments, uh, but I never like went to like OT myself. I never had motor control developments. I just didn't, you know, I, I didn't understand the world so well, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but then I, as an adult, and I, I went down that path and I tried to, I spent a long time, most of the majority of my life, I was trying to change what I was. I, I I understood that whatever I was was broken and wrong and I needed to suppress that thing as mm -hmm. much as I could, which made me very obsessive with the learning process as a child. So I had to figure out, like, okay, what do I got to do to be the same as them? So my whole life, I had to meet the education system where it was instead of the education system meeting me where I was. And then in my mid-20s, I started playing with these ideas and meeting circus people and they started telling me, like, please don't change. Like, be that thing. They started to celebrate. And that was like a big imposter syndrome moment in my life where I had to transition from like, wait, so the thing I've been trying to push down my whole life, you guys want me to push up? Yeah. Okay, let's see what happens. Oh my gosh, I love that. It's like it saved you. It saved the world. So yeah, I, I've lived, I've lived the, like the work that I'm doing, I've lived it all firsthand. I know the discrimination. I know... You know, when I was in first grade and I got moved to that special needs classroom, all the kids from the mainstream classroom didn't want to be friends with me anymore. They called me names. They made fun of me. So I've always I've always had a an understanding of what those people's realities are like. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then if you can, yeah, so maybe this gives me an advantage in some way now. No, just superpower. When is it hard to play? When is it hard to play? Um, when we feel when when your life is in crisis, when you're when you don't have your basic needs are met. So sometimes I get into those situations as well. I take a lot of risk with my traveling and my planning. I told you I don't prioritize the financial outcomes first. I prioritize getting there and doing the job. And sometimes people, I just tell people, give me what you can. I want to come, so just give me what you can. And then when I get into situations where I don't have cash and I don't have a place to stay. Then it's hard to play. So you know, it's like a hierarchy of needs. You know, you got to have your basic needs met, otherwise it's difficult to play. So when you're working with kids in like 
who come from bad environments and their needs aren't being met. Like a lot of times the first thing you got to do is feed them. And then, you know, and then you can yeah. start to look at the play. Yeah. Um, so when the basic needs aren't being met, that's when it's the most challenging. You, I see it when I travel the world, I go to places where they struggle, really poor countries. And I see how hard it is for those people to play, but for different reasons than I see in the United mm -hmm. States. Yeah. They're having a hard time learning to play because they're trying to survive. And in the US, they're having a hard time play because everyone thinks they are, you know, their own king. Everyone <laughs> thinks they are their own king. Mm -hmm. And they have a, a right, you know, life, liberty, and pursuit of property. So they don't have time to play because they're too busy pursuing property. Right. Um, yeah, but the only time I have trouble playing is when I'm, I'm trying to, too busy, preoccupied surviving. But that's changing now too. I'm getting, uh, starting to collect more rewards from the work that I do because I realized the hard way that like every time I put myself in crisis, I'm not able to give as much to the community. So I got to start to look out for myself more, create a, a more sustainable financial model. And then I'm always in a place where I can give. I'm always in a place where I'm ready to play. Yeah. Yeah. It's that whole adage of putting your own oxygen. Well, it's a more of a. Yeah, exactly. That one's been a hard lesson for me. I'm really good at giving other people oxygen. Um, but I'm I'm almost 40. I turn four, I'll turn 40 this year in October. So I'm ready to make this really? transition. I have to be like, okay, my oxygen mask now. Good. Yeah. Does the world need you? I would say. Yeah, I want to try to be here as long as I can. And I'm realizing, ah, I, I should probably start to take care of myself. <laughs> if that's my plan. Uh -huh. Put also, that the body tells you, the body tells you because you get older and it doesn't let you play the same games. Oh. So I'm, dealing, I'm dealing with that reality now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I got COVID and it just wiped me out a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, that's 50. I hadn't gotten it at all until then. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> that was your first time with it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've had it a few times. <clears throat> yeah, it was, <clears throat> I mean, it's not like I was all that safe. I didn't think it was all that safe. I was just kind of thinking, well, this must be an anomaly. Maybe I got it and I didn't know or I'm not whatever, but no, got it. Exactly. Yeah, so as we, as we get older, we definitely need to take care of ourselves more. It was like. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't go out and party as much. I like to go to bed early now. Even right. when I'm traveling, there's always this uh, there's always invitations. Oh, we they want to show me things all the time. And I, I just have to learn to say no. And like I'm really I'm really glad you want to spend this time with me, but I my body needs to sleep. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Back to the game. Yeah. The lights are going out. Um what do you like to play that you can play without a device? Besides well, and yeah, so like without a juggling device or without a, you know, mechanical device or without, what do you Without like? a ball? Without a ball. What do I like to play? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, my, my form of understanding the world definitely is more through objects. Like I connect with this idea, like it helps me center and focus all my thinking. Um, but dance, I like to dance with my uh, my girlfriend or my partners from Argentina. She likes to dance, so she gets me dancing sometimes. I do, um, oh, I like uh, contact improvisation and like right. flocking, these type of games. I'm really big into nonverbal communication. Mm -hmm. So if there's nonverbal communication, chances are I'm down. <laughs> you know, I'm ready to have a good time. You really are really amazing at communicating ideas. 
verbally as well. Verbally as well. Not verbally, yeah. I think uh, that's why I studied English literature in university because I had I wasn't that good. I needed to work. My language skills were a little bit delayed as a child too. Like I don't know, verbalizing the thought is a bit more challenging than having it. Yeah, more of a kinesthetic intelligence. Yeah, definitely more of a kinetic thinker. But I but I I focused on my weaknesses with my education. And now I've traveled around the world. I present all the time. So if you saw some of my first presentations, they were oof, cringe, <laughs> very cringy. I know. I love it's, that. It's like anything, it's like anything. You got to stick with it. And now, yeah, now time. it's just really comfortable for me to talk to people. I've, I've had a lot of practice trying to explain my ideas in different ways. So yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's good to hear that feedback. Thanks. That's beautiful. Is there anyone you have known to be really good at playing that I should bring on the pod? That is the last question, so go ahead. Yeah, someone I think that you'll enjoy. Her name is Dr. Kate Regal Van West. Ooh. Yeah, she's she's another person, an expat as well. She lives in New Zealand now, and she's the first person in the world to get her PhD in poi. And the, sort of a root vegetable? No. no, poi, it's like weight on the end of the string and you spin it around, Ooh. usually fire a lot of times it's very common and this is this is a discipline that was developed in new zealand by the maui people so they have an, an, an ancient culture of it they use like smaller ropes and they use it to create music but then the western uh you know europeans took it and they turned it into a juggling discipline so she lives in new zealand she lives in auckland i'm gonna go see her later this year uh, for the first time, I'm really excited. I'm a big fan of her work as well. And she's done research with elderly populations, showing the benefits, the health benefits of poi um, for elderly populations. She has a whole program. It's called Spin Poi. She trains. She mostly works with clinical people, and I mostly work with circus. But we've, we 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 have a, I don't know what you call it, like a professional, like, uh, there's not many people in our game. So you when you find people who are doing the same thing, you look mm -hmm. to, like, we sort of mentor each other. I guess it's like peer peer mentoring we have. So she's always talking to me about her strategies and why she chose her path to become more clinical recognized. Yeah. And I chose my path to go more circus, but we're we're both burning the wick from diff the candle from opposite ends and we're trying to to synthesize something together. So Dr. Kate Regal Van West from Spinpoint in Auckland, New Jersey. She's also an expat. I think she's from Illinois originally. Me too. Cool. There you go. From normal Illinois, she was born. Normal Illinois. Oh, I know that place. Yeah. Yeah, I remember because it's like your town is called normal. Yeah, you're so normal. I was, I was, I was born in Plainfield. So, <laughs> <laughs> gotta add some Just real, real generic names like Plainfield, normal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Give, give her a chat. Thank you. I will. Can I? Um, will you introduce me? Yeah, I can send you her contact info. Beautiful. I'll link you too. Thanks. Um, so we, are we wrapping? Are we wrapping up then? We are. Thank you so much, Craig. I feel like I, you know, sort of delved into the brain a little bit and play, and it gave me a lot of things to think about. So I'm just I'm so grateful to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm a, but I'm all I'm also available for online consultations. I do. Uh, hybrid online courses so like if there are therapy centers like oh we want you to train six of our staff if they're all in the same place I can do a zoom facilitation where I guide the activities that they're doing and there's there's still a benefit there obviously it's not as good as being in person 
but I can, I can, I do have a model for sharing ideas online that can help people get something moving. Is there research happening? <clears throat> you know, I mean, it seems like these days, like if it, things aren't being researched, you know, like nobody wants to do it, but um, is there a research project or anything that's kind of like taking your ideas uh, like for an OT? Yes. Yeah. yeah but other, I let other people do that. So there's like three published we have on the website in the, in the resource tab, there's research mm -hmm. and the first three articles are focused on functional juggling and then all the rest are focused on regular juggling. But people are still doing research projects. Um, usually it tends to be grad students that will contact me and they have they do juggling already. They were thinking to do research on juggling already, but mm -hmm. now they found this toy and they're like, wow, how interested would it be to study the effects of juggling on people with additional needs? Because we've always studied the effects on people, high functioning people. We know what it does there. But let's what if what if these adaptive forms of juggling can cause similar impacts or outcomes? That would be transformative to have that data. I already know it does that. So I don't want to spend my time. But if other people are willing to put in their time to do that, I'm always supportive. Yeah. And it's and it's happening. It does it's happening more and more. It will continue yeah. to happen. We have a new research tool. We have a new tool to research juggling. That's really awesome. Well, okay. I really look forward to um, someday maybe getting to meet you, but definitely learning yeah. to juggle myself. We I say, would probably uh, Jessica this too. She does a free juggling class on Thursdays, which I'm like, why have go. I not? You should oh. go. It's really, it's transformative. It's a great hobby to do. Um, in circus, we say, see you down the road. We don't say goodbye. Absolutely. So I'll see you down the road. Mm, thank you for being here. Now, I want you to get out there and play, everybody. Let's build a world that's a little lighter, a little less harsh, and a little more connected. Let's build the world that we want to have. And don't forget to follow Playfully on Spotify or Apple or wherever you're listening right now. Our episodes come out on Wednesdays every week so you can get inspired to play right over that hump through the rest of the week. I'd love to know what you think. So would you please leave me a comment? And if you liked the episode, Share it with one or two others and take care, everybody.